morning in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 9. We begin in verse 24 and read down through verse 28. Or actually, should I'm sorry, through uh, 29. Verses 24 through 29. Let us hear and attend to the word of God. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out only by nothing but prayer and fasting. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. I remember hearing a preacher say that the only question that a Christian believer can rightly ask God about why is why have you been so good to me? Now, while the sentiment of that exhortation is well intended for sanctified gratitude toward the Lord, maybe we should rephrase that question. We should always be asking God, why have you been so good to me? To say that we may not or are not given leave in Scripture to ask God other questions of why does not fairly represent the biblical record and what we have for us in Scripture by repeated examples Both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, believers struggling with faith and asking why, why this, why that, sometimes using other words, where were you? Were you angry? Were you dissatisfied? Were you displeased? Will you forget to be merciful? Is there forgiveness with you? How could you? And Psalm 77 this morning is a good example of that, but it's throughout Scripture, and so I don't want us to be hampered with a false guilt, but we do need to be directed by Scripture in the way in which we approach the Lord from the honesty and sincerity of our heart and even the weakness of our faith and flesh as we come to the Lord living by faith. So we continue here in Mark chapter 9. We come to verses 28 and 29 this morning. Uh, It is also very important that we look at the parallel passage in Matthew 17, which we'll get to in the course of the message this morning. But here, The disciples are an example to us of rightly asking Jesus about their their failure in dealing with the father and his diseased and demon-possessed son, but I believe they asked the wrong question. Their question focuses on observable results. Jesus' answer addresses unseen faith, and I hope that that will be a valuable lesson for us this morning. So in verses 28 and 29... And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he, Jesus, said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And I know that there is a textual variant. Uh, Some uh, translations do not keep the word fasting. Uh, I follow the Byzantine majority. I believe it's well attested, and I believe that this is worth Uh, keeping here and recognizing as part of the record. Jesus said prayer and fasting. So the outcome of Jesus bringing salvation through this encounter with the world, the flesh, and the devil, in the case of this epileptic and demon-possessed boy, further reveals and defines the meaning of living by faith in connection 
with God's ordained means for His transcendent power. The kingdom of God in heaven to be made imminent in the earth. And we said, remember, this is just after the transfiguration. When the preview of the resurrection was given. The transcendent glory of of Christ, the Son of God, burst through His humanity. The aurora of His presence in the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him in that apocalyptic vision that was given to Peter, James, and John as they were there. And, And it reveals to us how the transcendent power of the being is present with us here, imminent on the earth. The supernatural power in the presence of the triune God, personally knowable. Beloved, I can say nothing more astounding for you to consider. That is, the supernatural power and presence of the triune God, personally knowable and present in your life. In verse 28, as we've read, the 12 disciples privately and collectively appeal to Jesus about their inability to overrule the unclean spirit. Now I want to point something out here. I want you to notice that Peter, James, and John did not come forward as super apostles. They had been with Jesus on the mountain. They had not been a part of the initial meeting where this father distressed and and so um, uh, urgently came looking for Jesus and the nine remaining disciples were there at the base of the mountain and they were in dispute with the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. And in their disputation, the people all around, uh, there was a, a focus on these outward results. And it seems that the father and his son got lost in the crowd. I told you before that I think this father may have come as a true believer, having believed in the Lord Jesus and now bringing his son. Now, it's just an observation. I can't be dogmatic about that. But he came in faith, believing, called him Lord, and kneeled when Jesus was in his presence. And he says, your disciples couldn't help me. But I want you to know that Peter, James, and John returning with Jesus are now a part of this episode. But they do not come forward in this incident as super apostles. Even after they had witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, the reason for this observation has to do with the answer that Jesus gives his disciples, including Peter, James, and John, in connection with his originally going up into the mountain. Because we read from parallel accounts in Luke and Matthew that Jesus went up in the mountain. He took Peter, James, and John with him to pray. And there, while he was praying in apocalyptic vision, he was transfigured in their presence. And Moses and Elijah met with him. What an astounding event that was. We've spent some time talking about that. But what I want you to connect with here is that Peter, James, and John came back from that witnessing of the transfiguration as they had gone with Jesus originally as he went up into the mountain to pray. So please keep that in mind. There are two points of application for living by Christian faith that we shouldn't miss here. The first one is this, that Jesus' exhortation about always communing with God the Father through prayer is something he practiced. He was always in prayer. He was always communing with his Father. In the midst of crowds, he would cry out and say uh, to the Father, or even secretly within his own heart and mind, he would say to the Father that you might be glorified. I said this. And then there were times when he would go apart to pray. Sometimes he would take Peter, James, and John. Other times with his whole uh, entourage of disciples, he would say, let us go apart to pray. And the people would follow him out into the wilderness. We've seen that pattern. We've seen that example for us in the Gospel of Mark. 
So Jesus' exhortation is that we always be communing with God the Father in prayer. And the second application is that fortifying saving faith, we said that saving faith is the source of all sanctified prayer for believers. And so fortifying saving faith by concentrating on the revealed character, attributes, and expressed will of God in order to reassure living by faith, trusting God as our Heavenly Father in the seen and the unseen temptations, troubles, threats, testings. I mean, that's the point that Jesus is going to make to his disciples here, that you need to be in communion with God the Father regularly, availing yourself and living by faith. And you need to be concentrating on who God the Father is and his will, his direction in your life. Don't get ensnared and caught up in the observable things. Your eyes upon things you can see, but look to the unseen what you believe and what God reveals by faith. And so many of the self-reflecting and self-examining scriptures are intended to move us out of ourselves, to move us away from only looking inward. And this is one of the points that I want to make to you that I, I know that I often caution you about worldly psychology. I think worldly psychology is like a blind hog under an oak tree. It can root up the acorns. Humanistic psychology can tell us about many patterns of problems. But humanistic psychology does not have the answer of transformation that comes through the power and supernatural presence of God and His grace and His way of changing our heart and changing our mind. And so we as Christian believers need to be looking not just inwardly, we need to look upward. We have a good example in Psalm 103. I referenced that psalm this morning in our... Uh, call to confession and repentance and the assurance of God's forgiveness for us and absolution from the guilt of our sin. I would suggest that maybe you would take Psalm 103 this week. I've given you a little bit of an outline here to guide you. Here's an interesting observation from Kidner on Psalm 103. Among the Psalms attributed to David, Psalm 103 stands a little apart. It's less intensely personal than most of his less harassed, if at all, by enemies or private guilt. The personal note is here, but David is soon speaking of us all. It is a hymn rather than a private thanksgiving. And we are reminded that David was the founder of the great choirs of Israel. And this is where I want to make the application this morning about the need for prayer and communion with the Father, that, that we continue that when we go from this place of public worship. This is how public worship and private devotion are to be mutually beneficial. Public worship reminds us that personal devotion depends on the Lord's personal presence in our lives of faith. The transcendent, almighty being empowering the kingdom of God on earth is imminently present with us by his promise and by his presence. Public worship is to remind us of that. I'm trying to remind you of that this morning faithfully. Public worship recounts to us that personal devotion is based on the Lord's being just and the justifier of sinners. So it's not just about what you want or having a better life or putting some idolatrous magnet on your uh, refrigerator and praying that God would give you that. So many subtle ways that we are led away from the focus of God's presence and our service and living for Him. 
Public worship restores by the effectual means of grace, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the Word, prayers led by elders to guide us into the the presence of God, uh, stirred up within our own hearts and minds to keep us faithful to the Word of God, the singing of of hymns and songs and and psalms that give us content to our focusing on and and, um, meditating and praying in communion with our God. Public worship relocates our personal devotion beyond time and space limits. We have a tendency to limit ourselves to earthbound things. We have a tendency to limit ourselves to self-indulged things and regard for our own lifespan. And public worship relocates our personal devotions outside of ourselves, beyond time and space limits, to the covenant generations reminding us of God's faithfulness generation upon generation, and to eternity that is a far greater concern to us than tomorrow. And then public worship reconciles. It brings into harmony our personal devotions with heavenly worship to the Lord. That's really the goal. That's what my prayer and desire is, that as we gather here and worship the Lord from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, that in the in-between days, there is a reconciliation in your life of personal devotion by which you are strengthened, encouraged on to live by faith and not by sight. So the disciples' question also reveals a problem of their focusing on observable results in casting out the unclean spirit rather than the boy's real but unseen need which Jesus revealed as a special case in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I keep emphasizing that because this is after the transfiguration when Jesus comes down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John, uh, reconnects with the other nine disciples there. And what do we find happening? Jesus in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. You and I come into the worship of God. It, It seems to bring us apart for a little bit. We're to be enlivened in our faith and strengthened in our faith to go back out And when we do, guess what we find? When we go back out the doors today and go back into our life of routine and activity and concerns, we too confront the world, the flesh, and the devil and are called to live by faith. So consider that the disciples' question is really the wrong question, showing their mistaken priorities of disputing with worldly naysayers. When Jesus and Peter and James and John came down from the mountain, what did they find the the disciples there doing? Disputing with the scribes. They were in a sitcom, or not a sitcom, a a reality TV uh, free-for-all. Disputing with the scribes. And they were preoccupied with the demonic presence, as they asked Jesus here, why couldn't we cast him out? That's what our focus was. And remember when Jesus asked, what are you disputing about? A voice came from the crowd. I brought my son to your disciples. and They couldn't do anything. He went on to tell Jesus a life of struggle, a life of heartbreaking care, living on the edge. Could the father even get a a wink of sleep because his son would fall into a seizure and the wicked 
malicious devil would try to use that to throw him in the water or throwing him in the fire many times. All his life long, his only son. Brought him to your disciples, they couldn't do anything. Who tells Jesus that? The Father. Because he came looking for Jesus and thinking that if Jesus wasn't here, maybe the disciples could help, but they could not. And so, by his example and responding correction, Jesus redirects this episode for a lesson about living by faith and not being a generation of weak belief, of weak faith. Remember back in verse 19, we talked about that, when Jesus scolded the generation of weak faith. Oh, you of weak faith, how long will I be with you? How long must I bear with you? That's a scolding comment from Jesus for generations of weak faith. We need to hang on to that because he's going to say more about it. It's important. That brings us into verse 29. Jesus said to them, to the apostles that were gathered into the room privately and collectively asking him, why couldn't we cast it out? Jesus said, this kind can come out by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And I already mentioned to you, I believe that fasting is well attested and I believe that is what Jesus is referencing here. So Jesus' answer is not about a secret knowledge of demons of this kind. I was a little dismayed because of the varying references that I looked at seemed to focus on this to suggest, well, Jesus is saying there's different classes of demons here. I think that misses the whole point. Jesus isn't talking about some knowledge of demons, that we have a secret knowledge of classification for demons, but rather Jesus is talking about the kind of approved faith that encounters the world of flesh and the devil. And this is where I said that the parallel passage in Matthew is so useful to us. In Matthew 17, Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief or weak faith, same word he used back in verse 19 of Mark. For a, This is the reason that you fail, because of your weak faith. Not because this is some kind of special class of demon, but because of your weak faith, your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, nothing will be impossible to you. However, this kind, this particular case of this demon in connection with the diseased condition of the boy, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, I want to make some points here about this, the elaboration that, Jane, uh, that, that uh, Matthew gives us on this answer of Jesus. And the first thing I want to say to you is about fasting. I already told you, there is a textual variant. But the point is, other teaching from Scripture and particularly from Jesus about fasting, I want you to understand this. Fasting is not a hunger strike by which you try to force God to do something. Quite honestly, Scripture teaches us that fasting is when we lose appetite. We may be losing appetite in distress and we cannot eat and we give ourselves to prayer and communion seeking the Lord. That's almost like an involuntary fasting. Have you ever faced that? Have you ever had a distressed time, a, a time of trouble, uncertainty, or, or doubt, or just your, your soul is crushed, and you don't even have an appetite. You can't even eat, but you give yourself to prayer and seeking the Lord. That's a type of fasting. There's also another type of fasting. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you want to spend more time in communion and say, Lord, food is not important. 
I want to meet with you. I want to spend time with you. I'm praying and, and giving my time and attention and focus to you feeding my soul. I'm hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You ever given up a, a lunch meal, a lunchtime? Because you were in the word of God or you were praying perhaps a breakfast and you're, you're so wrapped in the wonder and thinking of who God is and it's like, oh no, I got to go to work. I missed breakfast because I was hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That's a good kind of fasting. And yes, I know there are times when we intend to fast. Jesus said, go into your closet. There, there, there is warrant for public fasting, but it really has to come from the motivation of a heart that's seeking God, not trying to go on a hunger strike that we're going to force God to do something, but because communion with the Lord is more valuable, more reassuring, more fulfilling than even physical food. That's really the kind of fasting that Jesus is talking about. And so Jesus tells us that this is about our seeking and our submission to the Lord that is a part of our living by faith every day, constantly. It's who we are. It's the way we live. Jesus' object lesson about the mustard seed in the mountain is an intended exaggeration to illustrate the nature and the operation of faith. Approved faith is not a Christian superpower for heroic displays. It's not a super-added ability. And I want our young people to listen to this particularly. We live in an age when the, the superheroes come to life through movies. There was a time when there was a concern about comic books and did comic books have a detrimental effect on youth? My concern about it is in terms of pagan mythology that it simply redresses. You enjoy the superhero movies? Fine, if you understand that those are just entertainment and you do not imbibe the false religions that are connected with the superhero mythology. And here's a point that I want to make. We sometimes fall into this problem uh, 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 unwittingly of thinking we need superpower faith. Oh, if we just had superpower faith. Like faith man. Now, you've, you've heard of all the superheroes, haven't you? Superman, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Batman, my favorite mountain man. Faith man. See, we need to be like faith man. Super added uh, above and beyond, that we become the superheroes of faith and we think of our Christian life, that's not biblical. We mustn't let it seep in to our thoughts and our attitudes. Jesus says here in an exaggerated contrast between a mustard seed and a mountain. Wouldn't you have thought just the opposite? Wouldn't you have thought Jesus would say, you need to have mountain faith? That's the way the world thinks. There are many who simply veneer worldly ideas with Christian speak. Mountain faith. Jesus doesn't say you need mountain faith. Jesus says you must have faith as a mustard seed. What's about the mustard seed? It's hardly visible. It's like a speck of pepper. Jesus said before that the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, and yet it, it, it brings up a huge plant, and the kingdom of God is like that. So Jesus' intended contrast is an exaggeration. It's an exaggeration for our to understand the nature of faith. It's not like the flesh. It's not the way you're thinking and it's not what you see. Here's a biblical pattern. Seed, germination, 
fertilization, growth, and fruit. The Bible uses that pattern for us to understand our life of faith. The seed of faith implanted by the Word of God. The seed of faith brought to life, germinated by the water of the Holy Spirit of God. That beautiful symbol of baptism. We know it's not in the power of the water. That water represents the power of life in the Holy Spirit that brings the Word of God like the seed of faith to life in us, implanted in our heart and our mind so that it germinates and grows so that the Holy Spirit activates the nutrients of the Word of God. We're planted in the soil, founded upon the rock, the good soil by which we bring out a bumper crop of fruit to the Lord. That pattern is repeated over and over for us in Scripture. James says, receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Paul says, one plants and another waters, but God gives the increase. Jesus said, behold the sower who went out to sow the seed. The seed is the word of God. And it takes root in the heart, germinates, and is, grows, and it brings forth fruit. If you'll remember the parable of the sower, we often forget this. We often overlook this. The conclusion of the parable of the sower is a bumper crop, a tremendous harvest, not those grains that fell outside of the field. We often have a misguided perspective on the things that we have in Scripture. And so I want you to hear Jesus saying here that... Faith is not like the flesh, the world, the flesh of the devil. It's not like a mountain. The false faith gurus who tell you you've got to have more faith, bigger faith. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says you need genuine faith, saving faith. Saving faith is the source of all sanctified prayers, believing God. So in the gospel accounts, you might be surprised to know this is the last recorded incident of Jesus casting out a demon. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is no recorded demon encounters in the Gospel of John, only Jesus being accused of being demonic. I think there's a reason for that in terms of John's purpose. I don't have time to go into that this morning. But the only following mention that we have of demonic presence or Satan or the devil is the record that Satan entered the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. However, there are some more accounts, and we'll find them here in the Gospel of Mark as well. There are some more accounts of Jesus healing and of also Jesus authorizing the apostles to have power over demons. So this is what I hope you'll take with you this morning. Living by Christian faith, encountering the world, the flesh, and the devil is identified as an approved faith sourced from saving faith. Jesus' correction is not about secret knowledge of classes of demons or superhero displays for claiming superpowers by false show-off faith. Jesus exhorts Christian believers not to be a generation of weak believers, of little faith but to be strong in faith by God's approved means of grace by which the transcendent power of the kingdom of God in heaven is made imminent in the earth. How? The supernatural power and presence 
of the triune God personally knowable. Beloved, I cannot say anything more astounding to you than the transcendent one and only uncreated creator God is the being who empowers the kingdom of God. And he is imminently present to us by his promise and through his Holy Spirit so that Jesus says, don't be of little faith and don't be preoccupied with observable results and don't be ensnared into false show-off faith with supposed demonic presence. I believe the demons are real. I believe the devil's real. In his first epistle, John says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and I believe he did it. And so where does Jesus direct us? To try to figure out the secret knowledge of the class of demons that we're dealing with? No. He directs us to trust and to believe God beyond what we can see because of what he says. And so may the word of God dwell in our hearts richly. That we be a generation not of weak faith, but of mustard seed, kingdom of God, belief. Now there's more to come in the gospel of Mark that's going to be a challenge to us through the disciples themselves as to how well they understood the lesson that Jesus was teaching. We mentioned in Sunday school this morning there's a very significant transition concerning the faith of the apostles that is revealed to us before the resurrection and after the resurrection and Pentecost. Beloved, we live after the resurrection and Pentecost. Do you understand what Jesus meant about having mustard seed faith? Not the way the world sees it, mountain faith, but the genuine faith is brought to life by God's means of grace. It's fed, nurtured, and fruit-bearing. Our coming to the Lord's Supper this morning is one of those ways, one of those means of grace that the Holy Spirit promises to attend when we rightly receive it. It's not in these elements. You know that. I tell you that many times. We never separate this from the words of institution. The words of institution tell us what this means And the Holy Spirit attends it by faith, believing what the Word of God says.